0: This is the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Goodison Park. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Royal Blue podcast, where the three of us are still in our separate little isolation stations, <laughs> stationed across Merseyside. I'm your host, Avan Jones, today, joined by Dave Prentice and Chris Beasley and Despite being in isolation, there's still Everton news to talk about. We'll always find Everton news to talk about on this podcast. And uh, we'll start with an Everton legend making quite an interesting point uh, this morning, I think it was. Uh, speaking of Irish independence, Graham Shaw has said to that no. the Premier League season should now just be null and void. prenner. Uh, what are your thoughts? Do
1: you, do you agree with the Everton ambassador? I don't. Um, and, you know, uh, totally, you know, Sharpie is a genuine bona fide Everton legend, 24 carat legend. And uh, it's very rare that I do disagree with him. Uh, but I suspect he's given this interview just um, know, a little bit of airconist because I suspect it is going to be a very, very popular view, certainly on, you know, so one half of Merseyside. But Morally, I, I just don't get it. I just think when you've got as far as we have into the season, I think you need to do what you can you know, to try complete it. And that's even bearing in mind the uh, financial logistics. I know Sky, we've seen stories recently saying that Sky aren't going to enforce the 300 million or so. I think it is that, you know, sort of the club still owe them if the league can't be completed. But there are still you know, sort of some financial issues to investigate. But beyond all that, I just think morally, when you've got as far as you can into the league season, you need to do whatever you can to try and complete it. Uh, It's not like nineteen thirty-nine forty, which is the last possible you know scenario that is even vaguely reminiscent of this, Uh, when there were only three matches played, and uh, when Everson were unbeaten. Tommy Lawton had scored in all three, and uh, defending the title. Obviously, the uh, the championship was completely you know so null and voided then, and they went into regional football. This is very different. And I think there is still a possibility that the league could be concluded. Um, Obviously, it won't be until the league can see football starting again. But there is a timescale where that can be done, and where the following season can be started. You know, so maybe in September. Uh that can still logistically be done. So whilst that is still a possibility, I still think we have to investigate that. I know sharpie said in his interview that uh, he doesn't really get playing behind closed doors. And I understand there's reticence not to do that. You know, it's artificial football, it's anaesthetized football, but it is football, so it is competitive. So I think you know we do need to try and investigate that. Obviously, if the uh, coronavirus pandemic doesn't peak, doesn't plateau, and we're still seeing figures rising by June, clearly then you do have to look at what he's saying, maybe at null and voiding it. But until then, I think no. I think we do need to try and try and bring it to a conclusion as best we can. And uh, you know, so while that is still a possibility, I, I-, I would urge trying to do that rather than what Sharpe saying at the moment. Mm. I think B's probably makes a good point there. Like it, it does seem quite early to be talking about things like this, doesn't it? You know,
0: with you know, we we are still in April at the end of the day, and mm-hmm. I know it, with, with the situation as the country as a whole still stands, it doesn't look mm-hmm. to be slowing down at any particular rate at all. But it does seem quite early to be talking about more employees in the season when you can still run into the summer months. Yeah, Mr
2: Martin. Graham says, because obviously we, we we all were fortunate enough to know Graham, and we know he's not the type of individual who will make shock jock type of comments, or even the sort of remarks that are going to be deliberately inflammatory. He's not like that at all. But he genuinely feels that, that under um, these circumstances, that football has to, to take a back seat. But like as 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 David said, we are actually three quarters of the way through this season. It, it's very different. I mean, it would, have been a, it would have been a real big call to make if the season had had to be stopped halfway through because Liverpool already had a massive lead at the top of the table halfway through. And if we still had half a season left to play, it could be very difficult to complete. I think given that we are three quarters of the way through, um, yeah, exercise caution and just wait until we can complete this season rather than thinking about seasons that haven't even started. I mean, intentions. The fact that I'm gonna to have to start the twenty 2020, twenty-twenty-one season and well, I think that's not even we've not even kicked a ball with that. So I think let's get this season completed first because it's not just Liverpool's title with on the line here, it's very European places, Champions League places, the relegation places, because that's the big one, because some teams are gonna get off the hook and avoid relegation, and you're gonna have some very disappointed teams at the top of the championship miss out. So so many things that have to be completed and given that it is only nine or ten, and I think some couple of teams have got ten games to go. I mean, realistically, you could complete that within about a six-week period, I think, even if we are looking about um, mid-summer.
1: Yeah. I think we could be guided as well by what's happening on the continent. I mean, clearly, Germany and Spain are, you know, several weeks ahead of us in terms of, you know, so sort of the the pandemic's, you know, so sort of scale and growth. So, you know, equ- their four leagues went into the lockdown for us. And we're told that the Bundesliga, especially, their you know clubs are back in training now. I think John Joe Kenny has been interviewed about uh, how strange it is you know, so sort of trying to exercise social distancing while training. You know, so they, they are doing that. They are actually training, just trying to keep a distance from each other. I think the view is to try and return uh, to the Bundesliga action in the middle of May behind closed doors. I think we can, you know, sort observe what happens there, or so see how it works. If it is an in inverted commas, a successful experiment, you know, it's something that we could carry out here. But yeah, you know, just to reiterate, it seems a bit early still to be talking about null and voiding it. It might have to come to that, you know, so June, May, but certainly for the time being. I think let's just sit tight, see what happens, and you know, so plan hopefully to, you know, so restore football sooner rather than later. I think it did interesting you got to be
0: in leagues though, because does that create another sort of in itself? What happens to the Bundesliga? Do you manage, let's say, to finish their season by mid-July, let's say, something like that? But you'd be in the Premier League with that one boy, you but the Bundesliga have managed to complete their season. What happens to the likes of the Europa League, the Champions League next season? It, it's all just going to be a bit of a mess.
1: That's horrific to even think of that, isn't it? Yeah, you know, so if one league manages to complete there, another doesn't, I mean, you could have a season whereby no English clubs are allowed entry into Europe. You could have a situation whereby they take the finishing positions as they are now. It's a, yeah, it's a complete grey area, to be honest. And one that I th- Premier League officials would prefer not to investigate at the moment, I think, uh, just like sort of sit tight and try and plan for a season to be concluded. And all the meetings that the Premier League officials have had so far have had that as an end game, They actually said that is what they want to do, you know, so they're planning for a season to be completed eventually. I mean, as far as I'm aware, that hasn't changed yet, you know, that is still, you know, sort of the ultimate, you know, sort of end course that can change of course you know things are very very flexible at the moment and there's a no much big picture at, at the moment so what's going on in the world generally yeah and I think that's a point
0: that Graham was making in his piece wasn't it Bees that you know while we all obviously care about football we're all football fans of course but there is there are just wider implications and there are more important things in the world at the minute are there
2: yeah I mean that, that that's the concern everyone is obviously itching to get back out there whether that's football or just um or be life but there's a there's a issue with if you cut too soon i mean the sort of the the awful ramifications that we could have with that i think it's better to just wait and get things right well i said whether if that means it's getting behind closed doors i don't even know what would that mean for for best men and women i mean what would the media be attending just who would be there are you going to be there um, a couple of spaces down from your colleagues uh, when they talk about behind closed doors i don't i don't know what that would would actually entail. There's even be some bizarre shouts, about playing games at Wembley or St. George's Park. I think that's a bit of a far-fetched scenario. I think at least play them in the stadiums, even if you've not got the fans. But yeah, it's all it's all about um, just sitting tight and coming to do the the right um, decisions um, when when it's when it's safe and when uh, rather than rushing back. Then, you know uh, you don't want anything like the health concerns if, if, if we all just um, come back too soon. So, yeah, it's just it's unprecedented and that's why it's so messy for something like football, which is so structured all, over the calendar with the, with the season. So, we've just got to sit tight and hopefully things will work, work out for the best.
0: And, of course, whenever or if this season ends, of course, we've got a transfer window to contend with <laughs> in the summer. I think it's going to look a little bit dim this year than the other time, but it will no doubt still be there and uh, the transfer rumour mill hasn't stopped and today for Everton it has stopped quite handily on Gylfi Sigurdsson. Now, Football hmm. Insider believe that uh, Everton would be prepared to sell at a huge loss for uh, Guilty Sigurdsson, obviously the club's record signing, signed in the summer of 2017. Had a fantastic campaign last season, didn't he, Breno? Joint top scorer alongside Richarlison. This see a little bit different, has
1: it's been massively different, here, yeah, and it's, it underlines really what a, a very niche position that, you know, sort of Sigurdson Sigurdsson seems to hold in the team. I'm a fan, I've said this many times on this podcast, in fact, Hudson's new um, video that accompanies their Facebook post at the moment. So it's got like this lovely little, you know, all kinds of action from the club's history. And it shows you the skillful for Sigurdsson goal at a Goodison Park. I'm not sure who it was against, but just on lines, like the, the talent that he has, it was like an effortless strike, you know, so looking one way, bending the, corner, bending the ball into the opposite corner. He's capable of doing that. He's capable of opening up defences. He's capable of creating things. He appears to be only capable of doing that. Playing as number ten, and you know, so a, a system that accommodates a number ten. Now, Carlo Ancelotti clearly doesn't play with a number ten. You know, so he plays, you know, sort of a more rigid four-four-two, and it obviously he's included Sigurdsson in that uh, system, and it hasn't been successful. You know, so he hasn't appeared to be capable of uh, adapting to that system. He scored very, very few goals. I mean, it was uh, in the in the league cup was that his only goal this season. I can't really think of many others. Um, well, I mean, West Ham, West Ham, yeah. Yeah, you know, it's um, it, it's stark, really, the actual contrast to what we saw last season from him and what we're seeing from him this season. And it does seem to be uh, revolved entirely, you know, so the role he plays in the team, he still gives everything. I mean, I know I've seen criticism from some supporters saying that he's gone missing in matches and he's been hiding in matches I'm not so sure that's necessarily the case. I think a lot of it appears to be just the fact that he doesn't seem to fit the system particularly well, but it gives Everton a major dilemma and a major headache because uh, he's you know reaching not quite the veteran status but not far off it now, and he's on a huge salary. So Emerson are going to have to accept a huge reduction in, a, in the fee they paid for him, just to find a football club that will actually pay the kind of wages that he will want. you know, commensurate with what he's you know sort of getting at Emerson at the moment. It's a headache, and it's not the only one. I mean, I mean Theo Walcott is another player in a similar position, similar age, you know, or similar age levels. There's no suggestion Emerson wants him to move Theo Walcott on at the moment. I mean he does play in an area of the team that Emerson are massively blessed with options. So you can still see you know sort of a role and a future for him but maybe Gilby Sigurdsson. So I sort of guess, you know, so sort of why the club are probably prepared to take that, you know, so sort of major hit on him, just because he's a player that doesn't really fit into the system that the manager wants to use at the moment. So I totally understand that. And it's, it's sad, you know, you know, a great plan there he is, but I totally understand why the club would want to do that.
0: Mm. I mean, Gilby Sigurdsson's position isn't, it, it, it's not just an issue that we've had this season, of course. I think in his first season, he was playing a lot from the left wing, wasn't he? And, yeah. You know, I think that was because of our summer where we signed about 10, number 10s. So he, he was pushed out onto the left wing instead. And to be honest, we've seen him move out onto the left-hand side a couple of times, even just before this break. We saw it against Arsenal and against Chelsea. I think so. Yeah. I mean, this, this problem with gilfie Sigurdsson's position isn't really new. So in terms of having him adapt to a new system, Do you think think he's going to be able to do that this late in his career?
2: Well, when I speak to um, people in his native Iceland, they tell me quite a lot. He actually plays in a 4-4-2 as a more conventional central midfielder for them, but he he doesn't seem to be particularly comfortable or effective in that role. And he's he's actually struggled even in his his favoured number 10 role. Like we said, that first season not Guilfi's fault whatsoever. He was shunted around there. He was club's record signing, yet they'd signed Wayne Rooney and Davy Classen before he'd even come through the door and they were trying to accommodate him out on the wing. But even under Marco Silva, even playing a 4-2-3-1, which supposedly favours the the role he wants to operate in, he he was struggling then. But for for me, he's a player of of great moments, of spectacular highlight reel moments like Dave mentioned, uh, one that's been used in a in a um, club montage there yeah it's easy on the iron there's some fantastic goals there and like they were last season when he was joint top scorer it was his I think it was his best return of his his career but when those goals dry up and which they have done this season it's very difficult to see what tangibly he's he's bringing to the team like as Dave said he is a willing runner people the um, his fans always say that he's got these great running stats he's He's accused of going missing, but he's certainly not a player who doesn't put a shift in. But when those goals dry up and he isn't bringing you those highlight reel moments, it is difficult to see what he's bringing. And if, if Carlo isn't going to play a, a formation which does accommodate him in that, that number 10, as we said, Carlo favors four four two or or the Christmas tree, the 4 one which he's played. Either way, there's no natural role for Sigurdsson there. No. So, yeah, at 30 years of age, it Probably is going to be difficult for him to adapt to be a conventional mid- central midfielder within a 4 4 2, especially when you've got Andre Gomez beside him as as well. I mean, there's not a great deal of, of bite there, and um, yeah, what, what he, he might have been able to do it for Iceland, but doing it for the
1: Premier, in the Premier League for
2: Everton on a regular basis that's totally different.
1: Yeah, I think international football is so different uh, to Premier League football, mm-hmm. you know, you do get a little bit more time on the ball, you know, so defences will. Sit a little bit deeper. You don't get quite that frantic hurly burly that you tend to get in Premier League games. So you can understand him maybe having the ability to dictate games a little bit more. He's never done that in the Premier League. Like you say, we've seen isolated moments of brilliance, you know, genuine brilliance. We're actually seeing him dictate a football match. Uh, And in four or two, you do want to see you know central midfielders that will control a game and that will you know sort. dictate uh, the momentum of a match and the pace of a match. Andre Gomez can do that. You see him doing that regularly. He's involved often enough to do that. Sigurdsson isn't really a player that gives and goes, that moves the ball around. He's a player that will hold the ball up and then you know, so try and look for something to open up in front of him. you would imagine, you know, so 4-4-2 four, four, would be better suited to him because you'd have players wide, you'd have two strikers he can aim at rather than one. But it's not worked out that way he's not a player that fits into that system I'm afraid and you know clearly that is why you know so we're seeing stories like we're seeing this morning about Emerson maybe prepared to accept such a huge you know sort of loss and even that's a worry you know because given you know so the financial situation at the club can we really be to be taking 20 and 30 million hits on players but that's not what we're going to be taking on Guilfree Sigurdsson. But you know, that would then generate a, you know a huge salary that you know can maybe be offered elsewhere. It's uh, it's sad, it's reluctance, but it's something the club may have to um, have to look at.
0: The Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Well, I think going back to the bees just made. Then I think it would be it would be unwise of us to just blame this on a positional or, or like a formation change for Sigurdsson, because even under Marco Silver at the start of this season, there were questions over Sigurdsson. You know, Alex Ovechkin was playing in that number ten role, and he seemed to be, you know, much more comfortable in in the way the whole team was playing. So, uh, but and of course, Iwobi will be facing the same issue that Sigurdsson is on mm-hmm. the new Ancelotti system. You know, he's an attacking midfielder who is going to have to adapt. He's probably going to have to adapt to play more of a left wing role. Is it just is it just an age factor maybe that that, that we're seeing? Difference in opinion, be and Sigurdsson, or is it just the fact that Wilby is is more adept to being able to switch over?
1: I don't know. We could argue that we've not seen nothing like the back of Alex Iwobi at the moment as well. Uh, I know he's become a, bit of a you know sort of figure that the fans like to point the finger at at the moment. You know, so one of those guys that seems to be at the uh, the brunt of criticism when things go wrong. <laughs> Uh, but certainly when he started, you know, he he looked bright enough. He had you know so a handful of you know so quite interesting uh you know performances. Um but he's young, you know, he's got time on his side, and you know, so yes, you can you know, so I hope that there will be improvements. You're not going to see much more improvement from Guilfi Sigan, are you? You know, so I think you could argue you've seen the absolute best of him. Um it also points a little bit towards the other club's recruitment policy. I know. Uh, it's been written in the past that the club recruited last summer based on a 3 3 system that uh, Marco Silva never actually played. Uh, yeah. so, you know, so players are recruited to fit a system that you know was very, very quickly obsolete. So, you know, a little bit of a finger pointing at Marco Silva, maybe. There. Uh, but you know, Alex Roby is one for the future. So he's a player that we can see you know sort of more improvement from and hopefully we'll see more improvement from Sigurdsson, maybe We've certainly seen the best of him. So it's it, it's unfortunate. But I thought I've changes in the squad this summer and your Carlo Ancelotti needs to build a squad that he's happy with and he's comfortable with and if Sigurdsson's not part of that, you know, so be it. football's a ruthless business.
0: Yeah, I think Fernando makes a good point there. There's need be, you know, there's got to be there's got to be a lot of change at Everton this summer. Obviously we don't know how the transfer window is going to shape up and maybe that might affect how much business Everton can do in the summer, but do you think Maybe Sigurdsson is a player that you could say we get him out, we can get at least a, a fee for him and then mm-hmm. we can try and reinvest that into other areas of the pitch.
2: Yeah, I mean, Everton were always going to take a big loss on Sigurdsson, even if he'd been a roaring success because they said him at the age of 27. So whether he'd been a success or a failure by the time you'd finished with him, you were going to get very little in return compared to that massive fee that they uh, they actually paid on him in the first place. But yeah, I think it's going to be... A big issue is can you get somebody to take him on? Maybe a lesser light, maybe, you know, if he wants to be, you know, a, a big fish in a small pond like you've been at Swansea in the past, maybe somebody, obviously they're not in the Premier League anymore, but that sort of equivalent club might be willing to take um, a gamble on, on a big name player like Sigerson. But I think it is a concern just getting him out the door. It's like it's been with so many of these players who've been signed on big wages, whether it's Obviously, it's fair uh, to compare him to just downright flops like Sandro Ramirez or somebody like Yannick Bellassi or uh, Everton has struggled with so many of these players just to, to get them off the books. And it's going to be, like we say, whether there is a future for Theo Walcott or, or not, but he's similar, you know, a player on a, a, a big salary, wrong side of 30 now. It, it's it, it's a question of how many can they offload before they bring them in? Because Baha uh, Mashiri is, you know, he's... he's his um, ambition for the club can't be questioned at all, but he's under huge uh, restraints with financial fair play now. I mean, Everton been linked with you know players like Gareth Bale, Aaron Ramsey, and it, it's it's like fantasy football, as much as you'd like to see those sort of stellar names coming in. And somebody like Carlo Ancelotti, arguably, if anyone was going to attract them to the club, it would be someone like him. But you just can't go out now with a, with a blank chat, checkbook, as it were, and sign all these huge names. You have got to balance the books because because of financial play there, the restraints that you've got to work under and get the likes of Sigurdsson and who else out the door first before you can uh, rebuild that squad.
1: Yeah, I, I just wonder whether, uh, you know, so an upwardly mobile championship club, you know, so I see Sigurdsson as, uh, you know, a project worth taking on, but similar to like Derby County and Wayne Rooney. Um, obviously, he's not got the same, you know, so status or, you know, the same name in the game as Wayne Rooney has. But you know, so equally, he's got the ability, you know, sort to make a big difference into a side looking to, you know, sort of get out of the championship. Whether a championship club could afford the kind of wages he's on, now is a is a completely different matter altogether. And again, this comes back to the coronavirus situation. You know, football, the landscape of football is going to change quite significantly. We're already talking about, uh, you know, so players taking, you know, so pay cuts. Uh, you know, clubs being forced to cut their financial cuts accordingly. Whether that will leave Everton in a situation where they can't remove really move the player on because nobody else can afford him or whether Everton might have to force, you know, sort of part of his wages to move him on is uh, another matter altogether so yeah, there's, there's a few factors to this uh, but it's, it's a situation that Everton, it sounds, you know, sort of Everton have made a decision on and, you know, the sooner it'll happen, well, the better for all parties concerned
0: mm-hmm. I have to <laughs> say very bad <laughs> um, Will, should we get the bad one out the way first? And uh, we'll remember, finish, on a, finish on a high, yeah. that's yeah, that, 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 that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we'll 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 get the 2012 one out the way first. Uh, Everton's second most recent FA Cup semi-final, of course. Uh, Everton and Liverpool. Things were all going so well when Yelovich put us ahead in the first oh. half, and <laughs> then and then a, a couple of really costly mistakes happened in the second half. Uh, yeah. Pren- what are, your,
1: what are your memories? Oh, Why are you life. doing this to me? Um, <laughs> I, I, I can remember so many things about it. Um, certainly the fact that the squads that David Moyes had to play with at that time were so thin on the ground. I mean, the fact that Maggie Gay actually played you know that game. we would had a good game in the quarterfinal at Sunderland, and uh, you know, the replay uh, played really well, but that was probably his one standout performance as an Emerson winger. So to go in a semi-final, Final, really, with him starting the match on the left, you know, so it was a problem straight away. But Emerson were in better form than Liverpool at the time. Liverpool had, I think, their third choice goalkeeper uh, in goal that day. Yeah, Brad Jones, you yeah. 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 so, know. So, you know, so we were very, very optimistic. And of course, you know, so Jelovic was like you know, a striker on fire at that time. And I always remember, obviously, you know, so him scoring the goal, Liverpool making a mistake, Emerson at half time, leading and playing particularly well. But in the second half, retreating into their shell, which seemed to be a thing you know, sort of during the David Moyes era. It's almost like, um, you know, so what we have, we hold. I'm not suggesting that came from the manager. I think maybe the players themselves just found know, themselves in a situation whereby, because they hadn't beaten Liverpool for so long, it was right. You know, so we must hold this. We must try and you know, sort of sit tight on what we've got. And I always remember there was a guy who worked for Times at the time, Tony Evans, uh, who wrote a piece earlier that day uh, saying this. Or was it a half-time even he mentioned this? He says that, you know, so he's not concerned, he's not worried, because sooner or later, Everton will remember who they are. And it it was like a bit of a smart-ass kind of comment to come out with. But equally, it did underline um, the two mentalities at large at the time, the fact that Everton hadn't beaten Liverpool for so long and eventually that dawn realisation of, you know, so, wow, we were in a position where we could actually win this. Suddenly, you know, so came to the forefront of the mind. And Liverpool equally, we get the confidence in knowing that they always had a good spell against Everton. We just never quite expected the good spell to come the, the, in the manner in which it came. Sylvan Distant, Lord knows, I like, sort of got possessed and, but you know, sort of turn around. Not look and just roll a ball straight into the, of all people Louis Suarez's path. It was an absolutely tragic mistake. I Still remember, you know, so his demeanour after the game—that really contrite and you know, so really apologetic. Uh, you know, sort of visage he had as he walked up to the uh, Emerson supporters, and he didn't get any flack for it. Everybody, you know, so knew it was just one of those horrendous mistakes that sometimes happens. And of course, so that was the turning point. Brucally, it wasn't the uh, one which. It wasn't the goal which decided the game. That was a, a corner, you know, so right at the end, which again, particularly well defended. And Andy Carroll did one of the few good things he'd done in his entire Liverpool career. It was, it was a, it was a horrible, horrible grim day. Grand National Day as well, I recall. So I managed, I remember getting out of the ground, you know, so as soon as I could and actually listening to the race on the way home. And yeah, sure enough, my horse didn't win either. So yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was, just, it was just a dreadful day all round. And oh, no, not one I remember with any kind of fondness whatsoever. Yeah, well, it
0: was quite the day in the city, wasn't it? Like, I mean, that's the first all old, old Liverpool clash that I can remember at Wembley. Uh, that was That's, that's me showing me age a little bit there, yeah. really, isn't it? Uh, Bees, do you have any different memories
2: <laughs> from, from that one? <laughs> Cheers all up during the lockdown. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, it. it, it, it 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 was it was awful from an Everton point of view, in that like I said, because the the derby record had been so poor for so long, this was seen in Blues eyes as being that big chance that they would finally get one over on Liverpool and in a big game because not only had um they had such a terrible derby record, going back even beyond when that poor derby record started. They'd obviously done. They'd always come up short in the big games against Liverpool for a variety of different reasons. Won't get Dave on that again. But um, you know, whether it had been cup semi-final in the past, cup finals in the past, this was going to be the one big game that Everton would um, would win against um, Liverpool. They like they said they, although they had um, a few um, selection issues going into the the match, and we're actually team in form. Finished above Liverpool that season. Obviously, Leash was heading for the sack that um, that season. He 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 ended up winning the League Cup and getting to the, the FA Cup final because of that. But they they just fell off the cliff in the league. Um, they'd lost their first two choice keepers. Like we said, Brad Jones was in their third choice, but he wasn't even tested. Despite Everton going into the lead, I've like said we've said already through who was enjoying a real purple patch at that time. Yeah, they, they 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 just collapsed. They just, they just, you know, on the big occasion, whether you can point the finger at the manager or not, those various different teams under David Moyes throughout his his, his long tenure, there were various points where we thought they should have done better. For me, there was that one, the, the huge one was the, the UEFA Cup um, when Zenit Saint Petersburg beat um, Rangers in the final in 08. I think that was seen as a huge missed opportunity. And this was this was another one. um you thought this was a real for Everton to go out and achieve something and for for David Moyes to win that silverware and yet yeah, to, to to fall flat and for the way like I said the manner of the uh in that because remember Everton's goal was a, was a terrible mistake for, wasn't it Jamie yeah. Carrick so yeah. it was like it was almost like this stand going well you call that a mistake <laughs> this is a <laughs> um, yeah and then obviously of all people um, Andy Carroll who was getting absolute dogs abuse from all the copites for his, his performance to come up and Heading the way, yeah, they, it had everything in
1: terms of being like awful from an Evertonian's point of view. It, it just look, look at the uh, fixtures from that season now, and it just underlines again that Merseyside derby mentality that you know, so Everton seemed to have, and you know, so sadly currently still seems to possess. That was the only match Everton lost from mid March through to the end of the season. We're mm. on a great run of form, you know, so it beat Swansea, Sunderland, West Brom. Bassett Sullivan 4 0, you know, so sort of in a league game. Yeah. Then had the derby match. The very next match after the derby, basically 4-0. cost Man United the title. Yeah, you, know, the draw, Trafford, yeah. you know, leading and drawing that game 4 4. Bassett fallen full. And went through to the end of the season unbeaten. Just the one absolute, you know, so stark game that stands out was that derby match. And you do have to put that down, probably, to mental strength on the day. You know, so Liverpool had a little bit stronger mentality than Everton did, unfortunately. Right. He's off a good one. Come on, he wants the good one. (laughs) (laughs) Only Dave Dave
0: remembers this one. (laughs) Everton, Southampton, 1984, 1 0. Adrian, what a day, eh, Cronow?
1: It it, it was one of the most riotously celebrated Everton goals ever in in the club's history. So, genuinely, it was absolutely incredible. Because uh, if you remember the, the semi you don't remember because you're far. <laughs> <but, laughs> yeah, the the, the semi finals that year, uh, we got the dodgy draw. I mean, Southampton were a very good side at the time. They had uh, Peter Shilton in goal, Mills, you know, Frank Worthington. Uh, lots of very, very good players, and they were a good side on a decent run of form. The other semi final was Watford against Plymouth. Plymouth Argyle, I think, were third tier at the time. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, if we'd have got Plymouth or Watford, we'd have been at Wembley no problem. The fact that drew Southampton was, well, if we can somehow get past Southampton, we've, we've got every confidence we're going to actually win the Cup this year. So it was a huge game. And Everton had played, it was down at Highbury, Everton had played so well, uh, created chances, missed a couple of chances. Neville hadn't really been threatened all that much during the course of the game, but it got later and later, went into extra time. And it got, you know, of so literally into the last, you know, sort of dying minute of extra time. And I thinking, well, it's looking at the days when they had replays for semi-final then. And uh, there was a free kick, I think, in the, uh, in the far corner. Peter Reed took it. And there was one of those that he clipped in. And I think Derek Manfield got a little touch on the ball at the near post. It went to the far post and it just sat up for Adrian Heath. And he just knew that if he connected, you know, so it's going to be a goal. It's in the last minute of extra time of an FA Cup semi final. Everton are going to Wembley against two teams that you really fancy we would beat. It was a massive moment. And he did. He guided it in beautifully, and the place just went absolutely ballistic. There was a mad pitch invasion. It took a long time for the other fans to get back to the side of the other pitch again. Saw out, uh, saw time, and there was another mad pitch invasion. I think at the end, it ended in fairly savoury scenes, to be honest. On the pitch, there was a fair bit of fighting going on on the pitch afterwards. Uh, but it was, it was an incredible moment, and I always remember uh, the, the Daily Post, uh, the, the morning newspaper on Merseyside on Monday. And uh, I think, was it Richard Williams, who was the, uh, the photographer at the time? And he was lying on the uh, the uh, on the, the turf behind the goal. And you know, so as Adrian Heath scored the goal, he ran across with his arms outstretched sh- sh- and literally ran over Richard. And Richard mm-hmm. just like turned his camera up. And as Incheat looks down, and it's just this absolutely wonderful image of Incheat looking down with this look of absolute ecstasy in his face. With his eyes outstretched, gazing at the camera, and it just made for like that wonderful moment. Well, Richard will never take a better picture again in his life because everything just clicked at the right time, and you know so fortunately the Daily Post used it so well. It basically dated their back page on them the morning, but it was it was just an absolutely wondrously received moment because a Everton were going to Wembley, and the mid eighties as well. It was a time when the FA Cup final was still a massive, massive occasion. Um, you know. The descent of the FA Cup, in terms of you know, sort stature and prestige, hadn't quite started yet. It was still a massive competition, and so for Everton to go to Wembley, and we knew we were going to whoever we won in the other game, as it was Dryley going you know, Watford to so won that, game. but we knew we'd have every chance of winning that as well. So it was a massive, massive moment, and of course it was only a month or so after the uh, the original you know, so sort of Wembley gathering of Everton and Liverpool, the Cup Final, uh, when we on and John Naylor in uh, a very, very different circumstance to one we've just talked about. So it was, I remember that so fondly, that game. It was a, a wonderful moment, a wonderful goal. And Adrian Heath, you know, so probably one of the, say an unsung hero because he does get credit. Maybe not quite credit he deserves, you know, because the start of the following season, 84, 85, he was absolutely on fire. He was the number one, you know, sort of striker at Everson. Uh, Adrian and Andy Graham Sharp sure, or struggling well down a place in that team. Uh it was either of them and Adrian Heath because he was playing so well. And then obviously, everyone remembers you know the, the bad injury he sustained in the tackle with Brian Marwood. and he was never quite the same again after that. He was at his peak. And it was you know, the scoring of the most wonderfully celebrated goals in Everton's history. Uh you'd be far too young to remember it, Adam. Out, I don't know, you probably do you remember it as a I small was, boy, maybe? I was four years old, but Adam was amazing. A very small boy. Yeah. boy.
0: <laughs> I mean, for, I suppose then for us being able to look back at this in the context of Everton's history, it mm-hmm. seems like a pivotal goal in you know the future of what was Everton's greatest ever team.
2: Yeah, well, maybe we were obviously bemoaning the, the, the lack of trophies now at Everton and lack of cup finals and stuff. And you remember, it was actually um, 16 years since Everton had been in the cup final. At that point, since 68, when they'd lost to West Brom, they were heavy favourites back in 68, they'd lost then. So 16 years and, and a sixteen, and in that prevailing period, Liverpool had gone on for the first time to really dominate English football. So yeah, I think it, it, it's shown in its context where where people... Are watching the the Howard's Way film. It was seen as this um, really start of this great renaissance for Everton. Obviously, it didn't last as as long as we would have um, hoped. But for the next few years, you know, Everton were going to be the match and at times more than the match of uh, for Liverpool, and and this is where it all started. Mm-hmm. It's funny actually, yeah, because people always talk about turning points,
1: and obviously in '84, everybody always looks at the Oxford back pass as being a okay. turning point because Howard Kendall's job was saved, even though Philip Carter made it patently clear you're never going to sack him. Um, some of the players in that squad talk about maybe the Birmingham City game uh, around about the same time. I think Andy Gray always, you know, sort of earmarks that one, and some people say the FA Cup tie at Stoke when Alan Irvine scored that, you know, sort of incredible, you know, sort of amazing goal to start that cup run. But one that often isn't mentioned is that FA Cup semi-final. And it was because, you know, so winning a trophy gives a squad of players such an incredible degree of self-belief and confidence. Once you've won a trophy, I think if you can win it. You can win more. You can do it again. And by Everton beating Southampton and getting through to Wembley against teams that, a team they were com- or confident of beating, it was a turning point. It was a pivotal fixture in Everton's history. So, yeah, it, you can't really underestimate how big that goal from age Heath was. And, you know, I love seeing it, you know, so you see it every now and then, you know, so look, look back on YouTube or it'll crop up somewhere on social media. And it was just such a, a great moment and a great afternoon. And it, it did mean a huge amount in Everton football's history. Mm. Well,
0: fingers crossed, uh, next season, whenever that takes place, (laughs) we'll be able to find that next turning point for Everton. I think we'll leave it there on that that, uh, high point. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Royal Blue Podcast. Remember, you can rate and subscribe to us on any of your podcast platforms. You can join in the conversation with us on Facebook as well at the Royal Blue Podcast. Uh, Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Royal Blue Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.